they're actually there for to help me I'm excited. We are on the way to home ownership. I think this is going to be an awesome program for the city of Louisville. And you've, you've come a long way in a short period of time, so I'm really excited about it. So if you've ever come to one of our recycling drop-off sites, you know that those dumpsters are often very full and overflowing, but we are slowly converting them. We're in the parking lot of the Cyril Allgaier Community Center, and this is our first location that has made the switch. So having these smaller dumpsters that can be emptied on site will keep them from overflowing so easily. The larger dumpsters used to have to be put onto a truck and driven all the way to the recycling center, then emptied and then brought back. And our goal is to have a cleaner and safer environment for our residents that use these. They aren't accepting any different material, but we all know they've been misused a lot in the past. It's best to flatten your cardboard before recycling. So this is gonna help not only with that, better, clearer signage for a message that residents can understand, and it will hopefully help prevent illegal dumping at these sites. It is going to make collection a lot more efficient for our staff. They're really a game changer. MSD, ensuring safe, clean waterways for Louisville and the surrounding region. MSD does more than you might realize to protect the health and safety of our communities, and the work is really quite extraordinary. It is our mission to provide quality wastewater, stormwater, and flood protection services to protect public health and safety. Let's talk about MSD's three key services. First up, wastewater treatment. This is the water we send down the drain from sinks, showers, tubs, and toilets. MSD treats more than 170 million gallons of wastewater every day. Water quality treatment centers ensure that the water meets or exceeds regulatory standards before it's released back into local streams and the Ohio River.
Yeah, I know it's really their thing. But anyway, something you can. Yeah, we heard that. It's <laughs> okay. This bus is the Metro TV will start in 30 seconds. This is the regularly scheduled public safety committee meeting. Uh, in attendance today, we have Councilman Hudson, Councilman Owen, Councilman Syme, Councilman Rashad, and Councilwoman Flood, my co-chair, and myself. And uh, virtually, it appears that Council, new Councilman, oh, there he is, His camera's on, Councilman Reno Weber is also in attendance. Uh, Madam Clerk, will you read the disclaimer? This meeting is being held pursuant to KRS 61.6826 and Council Rule 58 Renful. All right, folks, uh, real quickly, we're going to deal with uh, a resolution and then move into our special discussion. So item number one is R-023-23, a resolution pursuant to the capital and operating budget ordinances approving the appropriation to fund the following non-competitive negotiated professional service contract for the office for safe and healthy neighborhoods concerning training and technical assistance to help alleviate violence in Metro Louisville. And uh, is there a motion? Second. Items properly before us. You're here to speak to this? Yes. Introduce yourself for the record and get the floor, sir. Paul Callanan, the director for the Office for Safe and Healthy uh, Neighborhoods. Good evening, Councilman Ackerson and council members. Uh, this, this contract is for a sole source contract to Cure Violence Global to continue to provide technical assistance and data collection and evaluation for our community violence intervention projects. Uh, it is a sole source, it's in the amount of $200,000. It's a one-year contract. It will be a continuation from last year, which they did uh, have a separate contract for $200,000 last year as well, too. The contract includes full technical assistance, which, which involves helping our sites that were selected to implement the violence interruption program hire their staff. There's a special process that has to go through where you're hiring the right people. Uh, preparing the organization's ongoing levels of training for management, staff, data collection training, and then in addition, 
uh, Cure Violence maintains the database for this program, so all sites upload their data related to this program, their evaluation data to one site that's housed with um, Cure Violence. And then they're able to calculate, put all that data together and send a, a report back to us. Why they're sole source is that they are the designers, the original designers of the violence intervention project. Cure Violence uh, is, the, is the number one violence intervention project in the country using violence interrupters. They are the experts in that field. Uh, these sites and these programs were funded under ARP funds that were allocated at the end of 2021 and part of that agreement that we have a council at that time as there were some concerns about the effectiveness of these programs that we would directly contract with Cure Violence to provide that assurance that all of our sites are following the fidelity of the model in order to maximize success uh, of the program. Any questions or concerns? Seeing no one in the queue, this is a resolution that requires a voice vote. Also, in favor say aye. 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 In opposition. In opposition, that passes unanimously. It shall be sent to the consent calendar. And for the record, we've been joined by Councilman Watkins and Councilman Baker. Thank you so much. All right, folks. The next item on our agenda will be item ID 23-0367, the Department of Justice findings. We've got Mr. Kaplan here to discuss this. I want to just sort of briefly talk about where we're at with things as far as this committee is concerned. Number one, none of you work for me and I don't work for you. So the rules are nothing more than suggestive. However, being the chair of this committee, here's where I sort of see things. Number one is we had a very in-depth discussion last Thursday regarding, you know, a lot of questions were, I think the, the topic initially was going to be this being the very starting point for what the administration is dealing with sort of expectations of timetables and what they might be dealing with. Sort of gives us a 50,000 foot view of, of the process of where it might go. Because again, nobody knows. This is going to be an agreement, uh, collaboration with the DOJ to find out what we need to do and how we're going to implement that. Uh, those answers are all still up in the air. No one has any black or white definitive, here's where it's going. Until this administration sits down with the DOJ and talks about what we need and where we can go and where the funding will come from, those discussions, those tough tough questions, a lot of those things were tough questions that they didn't have answers for. And I don't fault them for not having answers last Thursday. Now, four or five months from now, they damn well better have some answers. And, uh, but that's not, I don't see that as a topic for today because I think today, again, we will end up more going in circles about, we don't know. That's a possibility, maybe, again, Let's let them get their, their train on the tracks, headed in the right direction, and then from there, uh, if they do great, we'll be complimentary. If, if we think they did terrible, we'll be critical. Now, today, the goal is this. For the general public that does not understand what the DOJ's report came out with, there are 36 items. However, one of them appears to be uh, duplicate. Uh, so we could call it 35, 36. You say potato, I'll say potato. But Mr. Kaplan is here is going to inform us in depth and the public in depth of what these findings were so the public can know where the problems are. So we could be more informed about where the problems are. And so again, four to five months from now, the general public and this body can either be hoorahing or being critical of the administration for dealing with those problems. Uh, with that being said, I want to turn the floor over to Mr. Kaplan. Thank you for being here today. Mr. Vice Chairman and, and members of the Council, my name is David Kaplan. I'm the Chief of Staff and General Counsel to uh, the Office of, of Mayor Craig Greenberg. 
Uh, I've been in that role since uh, January the 3rd, and uh, I'm pleased to be part of Metro Government. We received an invitation from uh, Chairman Ackerson to uh, provide uh, an overview and, and summary of, of the 86-page uh, DOJ findings report that was issued uh, on March the 8th, so I guess we're, we're coming up on, on a couple of weeks uh, since that report was dropped and, and announced at a press conference by Attorney General Merrick Garland and his staff. We've had some, some time to digest that, and uh, so I, I, I agree with, with uh, the, the chairman. I know the mayor agrees that, uh, that the public needs to know of what's in this report uh, and, and, uh, and, and what the recommendations are that the Department of Justice has made that we're going to have to build uh, police reform upon and to do so in a, in a deliberate and as rapid of a fashion as, as we possibly can, consistent with, uh, with the way that Mayor Greenberg likes to operate, which is, is not waiting and getting moving with uh, steps, and in this case, trying to create the best police department in the country. That's our ultimate goal. Uh, so with that, um, I, I've titled this Summary of Findings and Recommendations, and I just want to emphasize that uh, you know, this is the mayor's office's attempt to, to distill this down. Uh, it's 86 pages, so uh, to really uh, get the entire report, you've got to read the entire thing. Uh, uh, there are uh, examples of some of the conduct that we're going through in the findings that we have not, we have not been able to put into this, uh, this presentation because it would, it would go way past time. Uh, but I do think that we have captured uh, many of the uh, important parts of the report that, that the public should be aware of as we move forward. Uh, so quickly, the subject matter of the investigation, it was an investigation of both the Louisville Metro Police Department and Louisville Metro Government. It's what is known as a pattern and practice investigation under uh, 34 United States Code, Section 12601. Uh, so it's not a criminal investigation. It's not an investigation of individual conduct. It's looking at collective conduct and whether that conduct amounts to a pattern or practice uh, by law enforcement that violates uh, federal constitutional or statutory rights of citizens. And the remedy for that is, 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 is uh, if this were ever to go to court, it would be injunctive relief uh, re requiring certain actions to be taken. And as indicated by the mayor at the press conference, we've elected to an enter into an agreement in principle with the Department of Justice to go ahead and step past the findings um, and, and uh, to acknowledge those and move to a discussion of remedies because we share the goal of creating a, a police department that not only engages in constitutional policing but superb policing. So the time frame of, of the investigation that they did were the years 2016 to 2021 and that is important to keep in mind because now we're in early 2023 and uh, the Louisville Metro Police Department and, and, and the Mayor Greenberg has continued this trend going ahead and trying to take some action uh, uh, based on the report and not waiting. So um, the, the DOJ made some findings about our community and this is not all of them but, but we've tried to summarize them. DOJ observed that Louisville is, is a racially segregated community. Uh, it spoke of the Ninth Street divide that, that many of us have, have heard about and experienced. Uh, DOJ found that black residents were three times more likely to live in poverty. Uh, that West Louisville residents have lower life expectancies and higher rates of, of serious health conditions than the population in general. Uh, DOJ found that West End neighborhoods experience higher levels of gun violence uh, than, than, than neighborhoods uh, across Louisville in general, and that Louisville experienced more than 170 homicides in the years 2020 and 2021. 
the DOJ did acknowledge that there have been some changes undertaken since 2020 that, that it deemed to be important and in some cases a positive trend. Uh, the Metro Council enacted uh, Brianna's Law, which bans judicially authorized no-knock warrants. Uh, the, the administration, the prior administration commissioned a Hilliard-Heinz report, that, that's a, a consulting group that uh, issued a report with 153 recommendations for things that it felt the Louisville Metro Police Department should do. Uh, many, many of those are, are um, uh, you know, somewhat echo what, what the Department of Justice has, has put out in its recommendations. So there has been some progress in kind of absorbing um, and, and planning for, uh, for, for the uh, DOJ report that was ultimately issued. Um, there is, uh, there, the DOJ observed that we had a pilot project in place to deflect 911 calls to mental health professionals and, and away from traditional law enforcement and, and uh, bringing police officers onto the scene and instead mental health professionals. Uh, today the mayor announced uh, that um, that project has been expanded outside of the fourth division to all eight divisions in Metro Louisville. So again, the mayor's not waiting to take action and, and, but, and wants to move forward on things that the DOJ felt were uh, uh, important early steps. Uh, the DOJ feels that Louisville has provided more funding lately for community-based violence intervention through programs like OCEAN and uh, GVI. And also that uh, the Metro Council did set up a civilian review board. It's called the Civilian Review and Accountability Board, uh, which uh, oversees the activities of an inspector general who can in do independent investigations uh, of civilian complaints. And, and we've been pleased that uh, Louisville Metro Police Department and the Office of Inspector General have come together and reached some agreements that allow that ordinance to be fully implemented as intended by the legislature. So the DOJ's investigation process uh, was pretty broad. They, they did on-site tours with all levels of, of police leadership, all the way from the con command staff, all the way down to special units and patrol officers. They reviewed all kinds of files, uh, internal affairs files, uh, incident reports. Uh, if there was litigation, they reviewed case files. Uh, they did ride-alongs with officers, so they got to see uh, how officers were handling incidents on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, they reviewed uh, you know, terabytes of body-worn camera footage, uh, and I would note LMPD gave DOJ unfettered access to all of this information, including the body cam footage, and, and, and DOJ has um, you know, repeatedly stated that, that they've been pleased with the level of cooperation. Uh, finally, and, and importantly, DOJ met with many, many community members, uh, community advocates, defense attorneys, judges, prosecutors, uh, without LMPD present, to get uh, their views on uh, what has been uh, happening with Louisville Metro Police Department during the, during the relevant time frame. So getting into the findings, um, DOJ's first finding was that LMPD uses excessive force. And again, they're, they're, they're stating they're finding probable cause to believe there's a, a pattern or practice of, of this occurring. Uh, under the Constitution, force must be objectively reasonable. It can't be disproportionate. It has to be reasonable in light of the nature of the threat and the severity of the crime. DOJ looked at over 2,000 incidents of what they call less lethal force, which means types of force other than a firearm, things like tasers, canine, canine bite, baton, pepper spray, uh, pepper balls, uh, takedowns or strikes. And, and what DOJ found was uh, a disproportionate use of force. Um, LMPD officers were using uh, this kind of less lethal force when there was no active resistance or threat. Um, they were, according to DOJ, using neck restraints, police dogs, um, tasers, and tackles, uh, 
when, when that type of intervention was not necessary. Uh, DOJ uh, believes that they found that force has been used to inflict punishment for not complying with orders uh, as opposed to force that's necessary to, to control the situation and for the safety of, of, of the officer and the suspect. DOJ found that force has been used against peaceful protesters uh, who were not actively resisting, who were passively resisting, uh, that police were failing to de-escalate situations, particularly uh, on domestic violence calls, which can be, uh, have heightened levels of, of emotion uh, and, and call for de-escalation. Uh, DOJ found that uh, there's weak o oversight by first-line supervisors over, over the first-line officers and, and that there was a, a pattern or practice of, of not making uh, referrals uh, of incidents to internal affairs that were appropriate for, for such a referral. And finally, they found that investigations of officer-involved shootings were flawed. I think one observation they made is that many times an officer-involved shooting goes to the public integrity unit for a criminal investigation. If there's a finding that there wouldn't be criminal uh, action taken, in, in many cases, there was not an administrative review called a professional standards unit investigation to see if policies were not followed or there were some rules violation that didn't rise to a level of criminal conduct but still um, might call for some type of a discipline or, or intervention. Uh, DOJ's uh, second finding was that LMPD conducts searches based on invalid warrants. Um, as, uh, as many of you know, warrants have to be based on probable cause. Uh, they have to be supported with a sworn affidavit. Uh, so the police officers you know, sign affidavits under oath. And with the warrant application, those are presented to the judge for approval. DOJ found that 19 of the 30 judges who could have been reviewing warrants were rarely reviewing them. And that, um, that six judges approved over half uh, of the warrants. Uh, DOJ found that there were too many sealed warrants, which means warrants that are not open for public disclosure or public scrutiny. And, and they found that, that if a, a warrant was filed under seal, that it was less likely, or more likely, I'm sorry, more likely to lack probable cause. Uh, DOJ found that in examining the warrants, they, they looked at a lot of warrants, they felt that the descriptions of the criminal conduct lacked sufficient detail to justify an issuance of a warrant to, to search a, a person's home or, or, or vehicle. Um, they, DOJ found that uh, warrants often included associates uh, of, of a suspect that, who were not themselves suspected of a crime uh, or uh, pointed to locations that were not implicated in a crime such that people who uh, were, were possibly only tangentially connected to, to a person uh, were still finding, finding themselves being searched. DOJ found that, that confidential informants were not being properly used. So when there's a confidential informant, there's always a reliability, credibility issue. Uh, and, and the DOJ felt like those uh, reliability issues were not really being addressed correctly during the warrant application process. And that in many cases, the confidential informants had a stale criminal history report. Uh, and and you know, DOJ understands that it's policy that, that anybody who's being uh, employed as a confidential informant has to have an up-to-date criminal history. DOJ found that there was a lack of, of overall lack of supervision and oversight of warrant applications. So uh, DOJ found that, uh, that, that warrants when they were filled out were not being carefully reviewed at a higher level to make sure that before they're presented to the judge that they reflect probable cause. 
Uh, DOJ's third finding uh, was that LMPD executes search warrants uh, without knocking and announcing. Um, and they found specifically that officers did not knock and announce their presence uh, before entering uh, a, a, a building uh, or residence more than half the time, or I guess half of the time. Um, as we all know, no-knock warrants are no longer authorized uh, after Brianna's law. Um, however, DOJ observed that a regular warrant can be served without knocking if there are exigent circumstances. And DOJ found that LMPD serves warrants at night when there are not exigent circumstances, uh, which can create an element of surprise and, and create, uh, create danger. Uh, another finding was that uh, officers were not completing the risk assessment matrix prior to serving warrants. So it's, it's policy that before serving a warrant, an evaluation is done of who lives in the house, who lives around the house or the apartment. Uh, are, are there uh, factors that make it uh, something that could be more dangerous than normal? And um, it's scored. There's a scoring done. And so they, they found that, that, that those were not always being completed. Uh, DOJ found that uh, officers were failing to record their warrant executions on their body-worn cameras, and they found that supervisors were not filling out uh, after-action reviews of the warrant execution. So there's a process after the warrant is executed to look back and de determine what happened and, and do a review, and, and that those were not, not always being done. Uh, DOJ's fourth finding is that LMPD street enforcement violates the Fourth Amendment. Uh, as, as many of you know, the Fourth Amendment uh, protects against unreasonable searches and seizures, and the Fourth Amendment applies to stops, frisks, uh, detainments, uh, searches, arrests. Uh, DOJ found that LMPD prolonged pretextual traffic stops without legitimate grounds for prolonging them. And when we're referring to pretextual traffic stops, we're referring to, you know, stopping a, uh, a driver for, you know, a busted out taillight or failing to signal uh, minor traffic infractions. Um, in general, it, the police can make a pretextual traffic stop, uh, but, but they, there's still limitations on it. And, and the DOJ felt that, that, those, that they were being prolonged. And we'll get to a second and what they felt was a disproportionate impact on on uh, black drivers with regard to the stops. Um, DOJ found that LMPD stops and frisks uh, people without reasonable suspicion. So for example, if someone was seen in the vicinity of gunshots, you know, gunshots had just been heard, and a person is seen that that, was, that alone was viewed as a reason to, to uh, stop and uh, uh, frisk the person, and, and DOJ found that that would not pass constitutional muster. Uh, they found that DOJ conducts uh, pat-downs without reasonable suspicion that the person is armed. That's because before doing a pat-down, there has to be some reasonable suspicion that the person you know, has, a, has a firearm you know, under their clothing. Uh, DOJ found that LMPD coerces uh, people to consent to searches, so presenting them with choices like, um, let me search the car or I'll call in the canine unit with, with the, with the drug-sniffing dog. And, uh, DOJ felt that, that the way that the choice was presented uh, on occasion was, was coercive and um, you know, negated the, 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 the consent. Uh, DOJ found that LMPD uh, unnecessarily sends four or five vehicles uh, to traffic stops, or four or five officers uh, when, when that's not needed, and that can escalate a situation and create an intimidating environment. Uh, DOJ found that 
Um, LNPD has conducted some warrantless searches of homes, so just no warrant at all, and they gave one example uh, of, a, of a hot pursuit that ended uh, near a house and, and uh, somebody jumps out of a car and runs uh, and uh, the police wound up searching a, or going to a house right where the hot pursuit ended, but without seeing the suspect go into the house and bringing the two residents of the house outside and then searching their house without a warrant, which DOJ thought that was an example of, a, of an invalid warrantless search. Uh, DOJ found that um, LMPD's training encourages overly aggressive street encounters, and they gave some examples in the training materials uh, of, of things like, uh, uh, you know, uh, e you know, even if someone is following your orders, uh, that, that doesn't indicate that they're not a danger to you. You know, just way, ways of communicating um, scenarios and street encounters that might tend to encourage overvigilance in those situations. Uh, DOJ, DOJ finding five was that LMPD discriminates against black people. Um, under Title VI in the Safe Streets Act, uh, uh, those are prohibitions against police practices that have an unjustified disparate impact based on race. Uh, what DOJ found is that, that there were racial disparities that it was observing statistically when it, when it did samples of various types of stops uh, and that those were unlikely to, to result from race-neutral factors. Um, according to DOJ, LMPD stopped and cited black drivers at 1.5 times the rate of white drivers, uh, that they searched black drivers at 2.6 times more often than white drivers, and I believe I saw in the report that when you account for similar pre-stop behavior, in other words, trying to compare apples to apples of exactly what the driver was doing to the, to, to the best extent you can, it was a 49% greater likelihood of a, of a black driver being stopped than a white driver. Uh, DOJ found that black drivers were 1.8 times more likely to be stopped for minor violations, and that black drivers were detained on average 15% longer during traffic stops. Um, the findings uh, on this uh, number five continue here. Uh, black drivers were four times more likely to be cited and, or arrested for marijuana possession, uh, even though the marijuana usage rates among white people and black people are approximately the same. Uh, DOJ found that, um, I'm sorry, they, as I mentioned, they, they tried to control for race-neutral explanations for the disparity by comparing drivers who displayed similar driving behavior. And they, and they explained their methodology for doing that to, to some extent. Uh, DOJ found that LMPD relies more heavily on pretextual traffic stops in predominantly black neighborhoods. Uh, and they gave their opinion that pretextual stops are, are often ineffective and tend to undermine the trust uh, of, of the neighborhoods in which they're occurring. Uh, DOJ found that LMPD has been aware of, of these kinds of racial disparities since the 2014-2015 timeframe, uh, and that uh, LMPD has failed to discipline officers who expressed uh, verbally, you know, words uh, that that could be construed as as evidencing, you know, racial animus or, or racial bias. And they gave several examples in their report of, of, of incidents where. Um, you know, where, where officers were, were making statements to that effect. Uh, DOJ's sixth finding was that LMPD was violating free speech rights. Uh, you know, as, as we're all aware, in 2020, there, there were, uh, you know, a, a pretty extended period of protests for racial justice and, and police accountability. 
Uh, DOJ observed that the vast majority of the protests were peaceful. Uh, DOJ found that LMPD was, during those protests, using force against protesters for the purpose of retaliating against speech. Um, that they made mass arrests without probable cause. I think they gave an example of, of citations being filled out, you know, en masse uh, b before um, confronting demonstrators. Um, LMPD, I'm sorry, DOJ found that there was a lack of a policy explicitly to manage lawful demonstrations uh, as opposed to the policies that, the policy that was directed towards civil disturbances or disorderly crowds. Uh, so so I, I took it that DOJ you know, felt that it was presumed that all types of uh, demonstrations or, or civil disturbances and, and didn't have a separate policy for, for, for demonstrations that are not reflective of any type of civil unrest. Uh, DOJ found that the training on civil disturbances tends to prime officers to escalate uh, situations uh, under stress. Um, they found that the protest planning process encouraged an overly aggressive response, and, and they explained that in their report. They also suggested that there could be some content-based discrimination. I get uh, many of you are familiar with the idea that that uh, you know the the government can't pick and choose uh, what types of speech are acceptable and which are not. And so, uh, what DOJ found some evidence of is that uh, the police viewed differently BLM and Occupy ICE versus versus a group like the Three Percenters, uh, and, and that that was having some type of impact. Um, DOJ found that there's no there was never any meaningful review of the protest response and and no supervisor review of, of force events. So there was some type of a review done afterwards, and, and the DOJ concluded that it was uh, superficial and, and didn't um, and sort of grouped together you know, entire periods of the protest mm -hmm. without doing a separate analysis. Uh, DOJ had a seventh finding, which is that both Louisville Metro government and the Louisville Metro Police Department. Um, violated the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, the basis for that was DOJ's uh, conclusion that people with, uh, I'm sorry, starting with the premise, people with behavioral health disabilities have a, a right to equal access to services, including law enforcement services. Um, DOJ noted that LMPD had been dispatched to over 40,000 incidents involving behavioral health over a two-year period. And I think that was out of over 900,000, so they're, you know, a, a, a fairly significant chunk were dispatches for, for behavioral health. Uh, many of these behavioral health-related calls involved no violence, no weapon, uh, no threat of harm. And, and DOJ found that LMPD uh, deploying officers into these situations failed to adequately de-escalate situations involving behavioral health, uh, resulting in injuries. Uh, DOJ found that LMPD uses unnecessary force on people with behavioral health disabilities. Uh, uh, DOJ found that LMPD treats people with behavioral health disabilities discourteously and, and callously, uh, and that DOJ and uh, that LMPD failed to appropriately implement the crisis intervention team concept. So the crisis intervention team is a situation where officers are involved, um, along with. Um, with uh, behavioral health providers. So that's a situation where, where uh, it doesn't fit within the deflector situation, but uh, DOJ's finding was that that was not um, really meaningfully implemented and that, uh, that, that the police officers weren't getting enough specialized training uh, to, to deal with behavioral health when they were part of a crisis intervention team. Uh, 
Uh, DOJ also found that MetroSafe failed to collect adequate information from callers in, in these behavioral health, callers who were in a state of, of a behavioral health crisis. Um, so moving away from, from the findings of probable cause, there was sort of a, another set of findings that um, DOJ didn't feel rose to the level of, of a probable cause finding, but still uh, warranted what I think what they called serious concerns. And that was in regard to how uh, the police department responds to sexual assault and domestic violence um, uh, situations. Uh, DOJ found that uh, LMPD was failing to open administrative investigations of officers who were under criminal investigation for sexual misconduct or domestic violence. So the, the, the point there is that there might be a criminal investigation and it, it would be concluded in some way and, and there wasn't ever a separate administrative investigation opened in, into you know, rules violations, misconduct <laughs> that wouldn't rise to the level of <coughs> criminal misconduct. Uh, DOJ felt that uh, it observed a lack of thorough investigations and, and disregarding of evidence that was being presented. Um, they, according to DOJ, the focus was more on the, um, um, the, 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 the direct complainant and DNA evidence uh, and, and not so much relying on the person who made the initial uh, call, and I forget what they called that person, but that, that, that they weren't interviewing, uh, they weren't going outside of the box of interviewing people besides the, the alleged victim. Um, they, um, DOJ found that LMPD officers uh, expressed skepticism of reports of sexual assault, particularly when um, the person in question was intoxicated or suspected of being involved in sex work or was in some type of a behavioral health crisis, that in those cases they were more likely to, to not be taken as seriously. Um, DOJ found that LMPD fails to complete the required lethality screening, screening after domestic violence incidents. So you know th those are required after a domestic violence run and those weren't always uh, being filled out. Uh, DOJ found that LMPD failed to properly present sexual assault and domestic violence cases to prosecutors, that, that the cases weren't well put together before they were handed to the prosecutors. Uh, and um, LMPD found that there had at one point been a consolidation of, of the sex crimes and, and crimes against children squads. And um, that, that that had, uh, due to understaffing, and, and that that had resulted in, in having a unit that where, where folks were not necessarily trained to, to, to do both of those things. So, you know, before they got into their specific 36 recommendations, they, there's a general section in the report that they just titled, that I think could be accurately titled deficiencies, kind of general deficiencies that they were seeing. And the first one of those uh, was that LMPD fails to support officers. And they gave examples of, first of all, inadequate policies, that, that the policies are, are not properly written, they don't completely address the situation. And so even if they're followed, you, you can't expect um, a great outcome in, in, in all cases. Uh, they also found separate from that that even given a policy that, uh, that might be good on paper, that there was inadequate training on those policies. And so the, the quality of the training uh, wasn't always there to make sure that it had been absorbed. Uh, DOJ found that, that there were poorly maintained facilities that, that signal that work is not valued. Uh, and they noted that, um, you know, some officers were telling that there was low morale due to uh, uh, the, the quality of the working environment. 
Uh, DOJ also indicated there had been a lack of focus on officer health and wellness. A second uh, major area of deficiency was that LMPD, according to the DOJ, failed to supervise its officers and hold them accountable. So, you know, in a situation, you know, assuming policies and training, there's still going to be instances where those policies aren't followed and there's misconduct, and, and DOJ felt that supervisors were failing to detect that to the degree that they should have, uh, that, that supervisors were often uh, hesitant to, con to confront officers uh, with, with rules violations, and, and there was a tendency to minimize uh, the conduct. Uh, DOJ believes that officers uh, often don't face meaningful consequences for misconduct after it has been detected and documented, uh, and that um, overall, uh, in their view, the, the, there's a deficient accountability system, and that's going to increase the probability that, that the conduct repeats itself over time. Um, other areas of deficiencies, one was that LMPD, in their view, imposes unnecessary burdens on civilian complainants. Uh, in 2020, uh, DOJ was only able to find 43 civilian complaints uh, filed with the Louisville Metro Police Department. Uh, they observed that uh, under current policy, only internal affairs may accept sworn complaints and uh, meaning that someone fills out a form and they put their name and they, they sign it under oath. Complaints that are not sworn to that come in through more of an informal channel, um, in, in, in that event, the officer who gets the complaint has discretion whether or not to refer it to the Internal Affairs Unit. So, uh, you know, I, 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 DOJ, I think, did, felt that uh, there, there were complaints getting made that, that weren't making it to the next level or that, that, that folks weren't pursuing them in the first place uh, because they didn't think they would get to, to the place they needed to be. Uh, there is a complaint form available on the website, but what DOJ said that you, is that you can't electronically file it. Uh, a civilian has to print the form and either mail it in or, or deliver it in person uh, to internal affairs. DOJ, uh, stated that other Kentucky law enforcement agencies, and they didn't give the specific ones in the report, but that um, other Kentucky law enforcement agencies make it easier. In fact, there may be a footnote that uh, references the agencies, but um, but in general, they were saying that, that other agencies do allow officers besides internal affairs to take complaints, uh, that uh, other agencies allow complaints to be filed by phone or email, uh, and that other law enforcement agencies in Kentucky accept anonymous complaints. So getting down to um, you know the, the the 36 recommendations, and I think anyone who was at the last meeting remembers that we actually it's actually 35, and DOJ clarified that uh, number seven was a duplicate to number four, so scratch that one off. Um, but um, I, I just want to run through these quickly, um, and and we boiled these down. If you go to the 36 recommendations, some of these are a couple of lines, but for the purposes of brevity. Uh, we tried to boil these down. So in, number one, enhance use of force policies, reporting, and review. Number two, create new use of force training. Number three, enhance force-related accountability mechanisms. Four, improve policies related to confidential informants. And you can recall we talked about the reliability issue and, and not having a stale criminal history. Uh, number five is improve policies and training regarding search warrants. Number six, improve policies and trainings regarding knocking and announcing before entering. Uh, to serve a warrant. 
number eight, improve policies and training regarding residential search warrants specifically. Uh, number nine, implement planning and after action review of uh, residential search warrant executions. Number 10, require consistent activation and review of body-worn cameras. Uh, 11, reform street enforcement policies and training. 12, require documentation of all stops, not just stops resulting in a citation or an arrest. Uh, 13, analyze data from enforcement activity to identify any racial disparities. Uh, 14, uh, pursue community engagement in reducing violent crime. 15, uh, make sure that public safety has alignment with community values. Uh, 16, improve policies uh, with respect to protests and demonstrations. Uh, 17, improve the ordinance uh, that Metro currently has in place regarding obtaining permits for protests and demonstrations. Uh, 18 is improving training on protests and demonstrations. 19 is to expand the mobile crisis team pilot. Uh, and we, we talked a little bit uh, about that today. So when there's, uh, you know, we have this deflection program in cases where it cannot be handled by phone, they deploy a, a mobile crisis team uh, consisting of, you know, behavioral health providers and uh, they, they want that to, to be expanded. Uh, 20, ensure that MetroSafe deploys mobile crisis and co-responder teams. When we're talking about co-responder, that's a situation where the police are involved because there is some type of danger and, and it doesn't meet the criteria um, uh, for, for the, the deflection mobile crisis model. Uh, 21, improve coordination between MetroSafe and the crisis hotline. 22, uh, have a true crisis intervention team at LMPD uh, that, that, that truly fits that description. 23, improve training across the department. 24, improve training for supervisors. 25, accept all civilian complaints. Uh, 26, facilitate access to the civilian complaint process. 27, improve civilian complaint investigations. Uh, some headway has been made on that because now the Office of Inspector General does have uh, the ability to uh, have officers attend interviews of these independent investigations that uh, OIG is doing and, and also now has uh, direct access to body cam footage. Uh, so, so we feel like that has been improved in, in the last uh, few weeks. 28, improve training for internal affairs investigators specifically. Uh, 29, fully staff internal affairs units. Uh, 30, improve the review process for internal affairs investigations. 31, improve civilian oversight regarding the Office of Inspector General and um, the Civilian Review and Accountability Board. And I guess this is probably where the, uh, the statement I made before applies. I think number 27 is civilian complaints filed with the LMPD. So, but with respect to 31, the civilian oversight, uh, you know, we, we feel like some progress has been made. Uh, 32, implement a police facility improvement plan. Uh, 33, improve officer health and wellness programs. And with respect to 32 and 33, there were some questions uh, posed to me last Thursday. And, um, you know, I, since I think there's some confusion about this, I, I want to clarify that, um, that we, we intend to and will come back with an ordinance uh, that specifically addresses those two things. Uh, in, in the context of that uh, allocation for public safety that was made by the Metro Council of ARP funds specifically. So that, that will be brought back to the council for, for uh, discussion uh, and, and hopefully approval. Uh, 34, improve processes related to officer sexual misconduct and domestic violence. 35, improve processes related to responding to other complaints, like not officer complaints, but other complaints of sexual misconduct and domestic violence. 
and 36 establish an external review panel for sexual assault investigations. And in those last three, you know, address the serious uh, concerns that they expressed regarding handling sexual abuse uh, and, and uh, domestic violence uh, cases. So, um, you know, that, that, that's the overview. Uh, again, I want to emphasize that it's not intended to, to completely capture every detail in the report, but your time is valuable and limited. But we did feel that this overview uh, gives a good sense of, of what the DOJ's case is, what, what they feel the evidence would show uh, after the investigation that they've done. And um, the, the direction that we're taking this is, is to get right down into getting a good agreement uh, with the Department of Justice uh, that addresses these recommended remedial measures. The DOJ is certainly open to a give and take discussion about uh, exactly how to look at these issues, uh, how to address them. Uh, they're going to be talking to the community uh, when they get back here the week of April the 10th. Uh, so that I think they want community input. We also want community input. We'll be involved in those discussions. Uh, <clears throat> and so the goal is, um, and, and already an enormous amount of work and planning every single day uh, is going into uh, planning for these, these conversations with the Department of Justice because each of these 36 or 35 things, it's a project. I mean, it's, it, it, the, these, are, these are headlines. Under each one of those things are action steps that have to be taken uh, that will logically lead to the result that everybody wants, which is um, a pattern or practice of, of, of anything like this ever occurring in the future. Uh, and those things have to be measurable because there's going to be a, a monitor that's appointed by the court that tracks uh, the progress that's being made, uh, determines if the agreement is, is being fulfilled as intended by both the DOJ, the community, and, and uh, LMPD and, and local metro government. And, um, and, and that process will take time, but if the, if the correct agreement is structured that's best for the community, uh, it, imp it increases the probability that we'll be able to get where we want to be uh, in, in a reasonable period of time and, and for um, a acceptable uh, investment of, of dollars, which, and there will be, there, there will be uh, requests made to, to, to fund uh, all of the things that need, need to be funded. Uh, for example, warrant review is an area that there will have to be additional personnel to help with that uh, at some point. So each of these things is gonna involve a conversation both about um, the process for achieving them how to measure progress and how to, how to pay for it um, if, if, addition, if, if additional expenditures are needed. So with that, um, I, I'm honored to be here. We, uh, on behalf of the mayor, I wanna say we appreciate your invitation. We look forward to continuing to collaborate. We want your input, both from your constituents and, and, and yourselves. You're, you're the closest to, to the constituents. So uh, please, you know, call me uh, and uh, call the mayor. And, and let us know what you're thinking and, and, and whether we're on the right track. Well, first of all, I just want to say, before we get into the questions, thank you for coming here today. This was important because uh, while anyone could potentially read the report, it's long. And so your overview today gives the general public an idea of just how bad things are, the things that were pointed out. Uh, I want to say this, there are some officers out there that are perfect officers. There are some officers out there that are short and there's some terrible officers out there. And so it's, it's at the end of the day, uh, 
we've got to approach that from recognizing there's various levels of degree that need to be, be worked on here. Uh, I enjoy and look forward to the fact that we're going to have a monitor because one of the things you talked about was a lack of accountability, a lack of follow-up. And the monitor, being an independent uh, person or persons, uh, will be monitoring that uh, statistical data to, to be sure that we are doing what we're supposed to be doing. So I'd, I view that as a positive for us. I think we as a body also, there's, of those 35 recommendations, four of them jumped out. In fact, David acknowledged one, number 33, uh, the wellness center, and, and those things are gonna come over as an ordinance. So this body will be dealing with that. Uh, other ones that stuck out were number 17. Uh, the recommendation is an approved ordinance regarding permits for protests and demonstrations. That's something folks of this body could be working on immediately. Uh, and then we look at number 25 and 26, acceptance of, accept all civilian complaints, and 26, facilitate access to civilian complaint process. That's something this body via ordinance could be working on also at this time. So it's not just the administration that can be looking to provide fixes, but this body also. So uh, with that being said, I'm gonna go into the speak to the questions. Uh, first is uh, Councilman Reed. Councilman Reed, you have the floor, sir. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair, and uh, thank you for coming again. Um, I think what is a little bit um, concerning to me is the lack of uh, specifics in this report. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned a minute ago uh, measurables. I, I don't see anything in here that uh, would allude to a statistic, st statistical basis for any of this um, in terms of, uh, you know, we're at this percentage, we need you to be at this percentage to be in compliance. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, well, um you know, the report did, did not supply all of the underlying data that, that they relied on. So, uh, and it's my understanding that it's it's DOJ's policy to, to issue a findings report which says, you know, we're the Department of Justice, here's the investigation we've done, here's what we will prove uh, to a court of law. So, uh, you know, they bring that credibility to it, but as a matter of policy, they don't uh, give us full access to, to all of the data that they've relied upon. So they, they provide so much detail that they think demonstrates that they have a case, um, but but don't go further than that. So, but to your question about, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, measuring, um, that, that is a conversation that we're having a lot. And we started that with, with the Department of Justice uh, immediately, <clears throat> which, which is that, um, you know, the obligations can't be to just do more of something or do less of something because you can't measure that. So what we've been made to understand, and, and we, we have a consultant that uh, has dealt with uh, issues in, in similar issues in Baltimore and New Orleans, both of whom went into a consent decree. Uh, there, there are a couple of different ways that you can look at um, provisions of a consent decree that try to capture these these 35 things. One is you can look at process. So for example, you can, you can evaluate, is this a good policy or isn't it? It's, it's written down, if this policy is followed, will there be any problems? Okay, if not, good policy. So you can check that process off. Training, 
They can review the training protocols. They can, I guess, in theory, attend to training. They could see how the information is being ed communicated to educate the people that need to learn the policy. Okay, again, that's a process thing that, that could be evaluated. Um, is there, uh, is there, are there accountability mechanisms? Again, that goes to process. Is there an early warning system so that if, if there's an officer uh, who has an unusual statistical amount of force incidents, not necessarily even resulting in injury, but more use of force reports, is there an accountability system to detect that? If yes, so you could, that's a process that can be, can be validated. You know, the other type of way of trying to measure success is, is statistical and it would look at, okay, uh, have use of force incidents gone up or down you know, since the consent decree was entered into? And I've seen a statistic that uh, the Department of Justice put in front of me that you know, in Seattle, you, uh, you know, the uh, you know, excessive force went down a certain percentage. So that you can measure that. What, what you have to be careful about in those situations is that there's other things that could affect. For, for one thing, if you're measuring something better, you may tend to find more of it. Uh, and so one of the things that, that the GOJ was critical of was that for a lot of traffic stops, there was no report because there were only reports if it resulted in an arrest or a citation. So once those reports start getting generated, there are gonna be more traffic stops because you're measuring more traffic stops. So, um, you know, uh, Councilman Reed, it's, it, these are tough issues and this is why I think it takes a few months to, to negotiate the, these types of agreements because on behalf of Metro, we want to make sure that we're setting ourselves up for success. Right, and, and I do too. Um, and I'll just say this and then, then I'll uh, let the next uh, questioner talk. But for example, uh, number 15, public safety alignment with community values. I mean, to me, that's a very nebulous goal. And you have 26 council districts that may have disparate uh, ideas of, of, of public safety and may have different values. So how do you measure that? Yeah, point well taken. That would be, I think that would be a tough one to measure. Okay. I think that would be a tough one. And so that's a conversation on, on, on certain ones that are more qualitative in nature. We have to have a conversation about, you know, how, how are you going to detect whether that has occurred? And we need, that's why we have to, we've called it a negotiation. I, I like, you know, after talking to, Councilman Ackerson, I agree, we're, we're trying to reach a, a good agreement because this is, it's, it's a collaborative process. But I think the DOJ is open to us making points like that. And so the more of those you can bring to us, I think the better off that, that our negotiating team will be because we're gonna be able to, to get an, you know, pose those questions to them and, and get answers. So thank I appreciate you. that. No, thank you very much. <clears throat> yeah, I would just chime in on one of the things you said there. When you're measuring statistical data, as your, your, your gauge, the problem that you ultimately face there also using excessive force, for instance. One, we've already determined excessive force is more likely used against minority communities. And then, so you say, well, if we're using excessive force, we can't be proud of ourselves if we say it dropped by 50%. I mean, ideally, we want zero excessive force. Once or twice, if, if there's a fluke and something happens, maybe that's something that we can deal with. But to just say excessive force dropped by 50%, well, that's still, 49.9999% higher than we want it to be. And so that's, you know, the statistical gauge worries me a little bit. Yeah, and that's, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's, that, that is a, that's a concern. I mean, we, we have thought about the fact that um, since none of these cases ever get litigated, there, there isn't really a definition of pattern or practice because it's important to keep in mind the goal, it can't be zero because no institution is perfect. What, what, it, what it can't be though is a pattern. 
You know, isolated instances are one thing. You know, pattern is something that goes beyond that. It means that across a, a, a whole sample, you're, you're seeing a pattern, so, uh, or across a population. So that, that's an important point, uh, Chairman, that we've got to, uh, you, know, you know, make sure that we're, we're aware of that issue. And where, where, is the, you know, where is the line of constitutional policing? You know, we want to get beyond that. We want to be here. But, you know, it, you know it's, it, where, where, where does the percent, at what percentage are you at that constitutional level of policing? I don't think anybody knows exactly what the answer to that question is. Councilman Rashad, you're next in the queue. You have the floor. Thank you. I have uh, two questions, then I'm going to jump back in the queue, let everybody else speak. Um, first one, thank you for coming again. And first one is, uh, does the uh, mayor believe that some of the DOJ findings can be rectified through the FOP collective bargain agreement? And if he does, why does he think that? And if he doesn't, why, did he, why does he think that? Whether the some of these remedies can be uh, activated through the collective bargaining agreement, you yes. know the, the the process um, you know has really just begun. I mean the FOP contract is our is our first one. Um, <clears throat> you know we we have received input from certain members of the community that there are certain things that they like to see in, in the collective bargaining agreement. Um, these DOJ recommended remedial measures, I, I think I'd be hard pressed to find many that, that really implicate the collective bargaining agreement. Um, you know, these are uh, by and large administrative things that, uh, that can be agreed to between Louisville Metro government and, uh, and the Department of Justice with input from the community and, and don't have to be run through the collective bargaining agreement. So, um, uh, sitting here right now, um, you know, I, I don't believe that um, we necessarily want to take any of these uh, and, and, and bring them into the collective bargaining agreement negotiations. Um, but we, what we do, we do want input from the community. What are some things um, that you believe you'd like to see in that collective bargaining agreement? Um, you know, there, there could be some improvements. Um, but, but again, we want to keep the focus on, on, on reaching an agreement with the DOJ as opposed to taking those issues and, and putting them in front of the FOP. Yeah, you mentioned uh, just now, you just mentioned uh, um, getting input from the community and all that. And I'm um, just wondering, you know, is there a, a uh, is there a task force that you're creating from the community to become members of this thing? Uh, I know there's a phone number people can call at some point, but is there a uh, is there a way for uh, you know members of the community to become part of this team that negotiates uh, specifics of the consent decree? Uh, the you know DOJ is coming back to town on April the 10th. They're going to have some community meetings. I think some of them are going to be maybe s smaller groups of uh, you know. Uh, for example, I, I, you know, they've met with the command staff. I think they had a meeting with the leadership of the FOP. Um, I think they've uh, met with many of the members of the community they were talking to during the investigation. Then there's going to be these broader invitation, not invitation, but just open to the community meetings that are going to occur. Um, DOJ, it's my understanding, though, that with respect to the negotiations over the consent decree itself, DOJ views those as bilateral negotiations. So um, under the way that they conduct the investigations, uh, there are representatives from the Department of Justice, 
representing the interests of the United States, and they uh, expect um, to negotiate with representatives of Louisville Metro government exclusively. Okay, before I pass it off, uh, the can you can you tell us what the role of the current chief is in this whole process right now, and also state that uh, you know what if we don't choose her as the regular, the you know the the, the permanent chief, then what happens to her role in that process, and what happens to the whole process? Well, you know the chief is actively involved. Uh, in this process as the interim chief. I mean, she's uh, working on it every day. Uh, you know, she and, and the mayor are aligned, uh, as you saw at the press conference, with respect to uh, reacting appropriately to this report and pursuing a course of, of police reform and taking that seriously and putting a lot of resources into it. Uh, she has communicated that uh, to her command staff. She has communicated that uh, across the, the force that, that this is the direction we must go in. Uh, and, and so that's, that's very much aligned with what the mayor uh, has also said. Um, you know, there, there, is a, there will be a police chief search uh, for the permanent chief undertaken. Um, and, uh, you know, the results from that are not yet in. But, you know, we, we are confident that, you know, regardless of what happens with that, um, we are going to have the leadership at the helm of the Little Metro Police Department that is needed to get this community where it needs to go on police reform. And, uh, and there should be no, no concerns about that at all. Next to Q is Councilman Hudson. You the floor, sir. Thank you. Um, if, if the DOJ has, has a vested interest in seeing or affecting positive change in this city, I'm a little bit alarmed by your statement that they would not allow us access to the information that they have. Uh, to, to Councilman Reed's point, each one of these findings need to have a qualitative analysis done on them because in order to find an effective solution, the first step is to understand the problem. And if they are withholding information from us that would help us to understand the problem better, that, that's alarming to me. Is, is there, uh, I, I guess all that to, to ask this, is there an opportunity to open that relationship up further to get a, a more sharing uh, relationship of, of the information that they have? Well, you know, it, it is a good question. Um, you know, we haven't been through it consent decree process before I've not personally been through one you know they they have you know they've they've got a certain approach you know in in litigation <clears throat> typically uh, you know when 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 a, when a party prepares their case um, you know they're, they're not disclosing to um, the other the opposing litigant um, all of their evidence at that time you know that that happens during the discovery process so if this in a hypothetical case where this was in litigation, um, you know, Louisville Metro government would be in legally entitled to ask for all supporting evidence for each of these findings. Um, you know what what the mayor decided. <clears throat> you know, well, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you because I think I think I've, I've misled you on my question. It it seems to me we should both be on the same side in trying to affect positive change on this city. 
And from your answer, it seems to me that we are not on the same side with DOJ. You know, that, I think they, um, they seem to be withholding information from us in order to build a lawsuit against the city. I'm not a lawyer. I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of discovery and, and litigation, but I am an engineer. And I know that to solve a problem, you have to understand the problem. And in order to understand the problem, you have to have access to the information. Yeah, and I think that that's, 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 that's frustrating. Let, let me try to respond this way. I think that the Department of Justice believes that they've provided us with enough information uh, to be able to uh, intelligently uh, negotiate a consent decree with them that, that would be acceptable. What you're saying you know, does resonate. Um, sure, uh, we, we would like to uh, get more data on the frequency and severity of various um, uh, alleged misconduct. That, that would be helpful. I don't think we're gonna get all of that, but I don't think that precludes us from cooperating. I mean, one thing that the DOJ has done, uh, and they stated that, that, that they did this because we've been particularly cooperative in um, you know, moving to the, to the negotiation stage, is that um, they, they have given us a list of information um, that's got file numbers and um, citations to body camera footage that would allow um, the Louisville Metro Police Department to go in and identify with greater specificity all of the examples that they gave. So let's say there are 60 or 70 examples across these seven findings that they put in there when we got that report, or when LMPD got it, it wasn't easy to go through and identify each incident, meaning you know who exactly was involved, when did it occur. Um, on, on March the 9th, the day after the report was issued, we did ask by, you know, we sent a communication saying, we really would like to be able to more quickly, and in some cases we wouldn't have been able to figure it out, but more quickly identify these incidents. They did respond yesterday with, with a list of information uh, that that will allow um, those incidents to be reviewed more, much more quickly. Now that review process has just begun because we just got the information. But I think that that shows that there is room for um, for cooperation. And I don't know whether um, we'll, we're ever going to be able to get them to provide everything. But we are having collaborative discussions with them. And I think if there's a certain thing that we just don't think we can agree to. Uh, without getting more information, we will certainly press for that. And, and I'd, like to, I'd like to talk to you more about you know, ways that we could frame those questions so that we can um, get additional information when we really feel like it's necessary to, 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 to get where, where we think the agreement needs to be. Thank you. Next thing is Councilman Baker, you have the floor, sir. Thank you. Uh, I have two questions and I, um, wanted to uh, start off reading the excerpt from directly from the DLJ report because I want to get it right. Um, if you go to page five and page six, um, it says that um, more than 15% of Louisville residents live below the federal poverty line. Black residents are three times as likely to live in poverty as white residents. A report found that Louisville, when compared to other cities with large black populations, had one of the highest rates of concentrated black poverty. More than one in 10 Louisville residents ages 16 to 24 are neither attending school nor working. Among the highest rates of large American cities, 
More than a quarter of black young adults are not in school or working. This gives Louisville the singest largest gap between black and white young adults in all of the country's most populous metropolitan areas. It then goes on to say, a lack of affordable housing contributes to homelessness. More than 10,000 people in Louisville experienced homelessness in 2021, a 41% increase. And then it goes on to say, another recent um, city government report found that on average, West Louisville residents live 12 years fewer than East Louisville residents, and they were more likely to experience self serious health conditions. And let that sink in. Now, I understand that, um, well, my, well, direct question is, and uh, what, what sparked it was section number 33, improve our officers' health and wellness program. Um, what is the commitment or what is um, the discussion, since we're still in discussion phases with the DOJ, on how to address not just the 36 points, but the observations. They put that in there for a reason. And so what, what will the mayor office be looking at when having those discussions outside of the report? Even though, I'm sorry, outside of the 36 recommendations as it relates to the health and wellness of constituents or citizens. <clears throat> Yeah, and I have a second one to follow up. Okay. Well, I think it's pretty clear that, that these 35 recommendations from the Department of Justice are not going to directly address the, the statistics that, that you just went through. That, that, that they're not going to address those. Um, it's still a meritorious goal to, to pursue justice by having a constitutionally compliant police department and, and better than that. That's, and, and we're laser focused on that and we want to do that. Um, you know, with respect to uh, the issues that you noted in those statistics, I mean, you know, the mayor is well aware of those. Uh, he's made a strong commitment to addressing homelessness. There, there have been announcements um, in that regard. Uh, he understands that uh, many communities have not been invested inadequately, have been disinvested, that there are health disparities across zip codes. He's well aware of those things, and I know he wants to collaborate with you and other members of the council and members of the community to, to address those things, because the DOJ report, I mean, every, every, the DOJ consent decree, if everything falls into place, it will be a wonderful thing, and we can be proud of that, but it isn't going to, to, to directly address the, the, the underlying socioeconomics that, that you're talking about that have interplayed with this. Uh, but all, all I can tell you is that he's well aware of those issues and wants to work with you on them. Okay. And then the second will be, um, will, um, because I do know that there is an ordinance to use federal dollars on the headquarters and the wellness center for, that will be coming down the pipe for the LMPD. Will that come at the same time before, after, um, when the mayor is addressing the concerns um, to the, the demographic that was listed in this report. And again, that's page five and six, so that's, that's not my words. No, I, I do see where you're going. Um, I, you know, the mayor did announce that uh, he, he believes that um, and strongly endorses um, using the AT&T building for, for a new headquarters. I mean, the facilities aren't good, um, they're poor. Um, the Metro Council had already identified $13 million, had already allocated $13 million to that project. 
Um, so then, you know, the mayor coming into office thought, okay, if the Metro Council, if, if what they want is this new police headquarters, how can we really make this happen in a reasonable period of time? So I think in, in part it was that that opportunity was right there. The Metro Council had already started down the path, and um, we figured out that, that there, there were a, a, a big chunk of ARP funds, ARP funds that had been designated for public safety that had not been spent, and that it seemed like, okay, if, if this is where we want to go, it, it makes sense to put those in that. So that was just an opportunity that the mayor saw to, to try to get that transaction completed. Um, you know, with regard to the wellness center, you know, that's something that, that, that has, has some community support. There have been folks working on it for quite some time. Again, when we came into office, we became aware, uh, you know, that the police foundation uh, was, was going to buy this building um, that's on President's uh, Street, kind of in the... Uh, because it's 601 Presidents Avenue. So again, that was an opportunity that, that was already kind of going, the train going down the tracks. And, and we realized that our funds could be used uh, to make lease payments um, on that building and then have the Police Foundation turn some of those back around for programming. And you know, and again, it seemed like a win-win-win transaction that had community support. So again, that was just an opportunity that presented itself. You know, as far as the, t the timing goes, um, you know, uh, I can't say that, that that things will occur simultaneously or, or in any particular order, but I, I, I hear where you're coming from, which is that there are other things that have to be invested in besides, yeah, those, besides it, those two opportunities. Yeah, and, and I, I guess, oh, you know, when, when I'm reading the report, again, page five and six, I mean, I, I didn't, um, I've read the entire report, but you don't have to go far, and it just speaks to um, what will be your sense of urgency to addressing these issues, um, along with the, I guess I'm trying to get a sense of where the mayor's office will be in, in having a sense of urgency to address, you know, the 36 points or actually reviewing the entire document and saying, hey, um, how do we address, like, what, what is our priority levels? And so um, um, I, I won't take too much of our colleagues' time, but, but if you all could, um, I guess, again, my ask, and reviewing that and having those negotiations, you know, there were 36 or 35 um, direct ports, uh, direct points, but however, the DOJ gave us a full scope of what they think um, or their observation of what's going on. And I believe a lot of the observations that they made um, are health and wellness issues that directly impact public safety. So I'll, I'll turn it over to my other colleagues. Thank you. And I, I would say this to my colleague, um, the discussions regarding disparities, everything from poverty to homelessness to other disparities that exist in this community, uh, we will have an active role in that through the budget process. Uh, I think the mayor will release his budget probably, what is it, early April, somewhere around there. And so we'll see where his priorities are with the spending and then we as a body We'll be shifting some of the pieces of that puzzle around, putting our focus on further trying to address some of those disparities. So, thank you, uh, Mr. Chair. But we'll be in, we'll be cooperative and uh, and and at the table on that. So, next in the queue is Councilwoman Hawkins. You had the floor, Madam. Thank you. Uh, I want to touch on number fourteen, community engagement. It's kind of disheartening to me because it seems as if we're playing chess here. But we are, we have a community that we have to protect. 
And I cannot uh, agree any more than Councilman Hudson said. It seems as if the DOJ is on the opposite side. And with saying that, it's like, there is no way that those officers cannot be identified. So I'm asking, through what you just received, LMPD is asking for a wellness center, correct? We're asking for the names and to know if any of those officers that committed any of those acts that are still in, the, in that report, if they are still active officers. One of the reasons for that is there is no way that we can bridge a gap and there is no way to start accountability if you don't start with that, if you don't start there. The officers that are still there should be held accountable and whatever that looks like. So if you would, we, we definitely need to put that on the table. We're dealing with people's lives that was affected. So I'm definitely, definitely fighting hard for the constituents that's been affected. I know you guys are working diligently and my heart goes out to you. But at the end of the day, my constituents, they need answers. And we all need to know as a body, if there are still officers that are still employed with LMPD that committed any of those acts. It's so imperative before we can even move forward. So for me, all of these 36, there's no way you can move forward without the accountability of getting that information first. Thank you. Councilman Rashad, you're next in the queue near the floor, sir. Yes, sir, thank you. Um, well, Guess I heard the question of um, do we know who these people are that are involved? And of course, I really didn't get a good answer. Um, but I'm gonna try something different. Um, we have a limited amount of judges in this area, and we know that six of those judges really account for. 50% of most of these like illegal warrants and different things. Do we have a list of those six judges? Um, the DOJ report does not identify them and so no, we don't have a list. I, I do know that the Department of Justice uh, sent a letter um, to uh, the chief judge of the Jefferson Circuit Court um, pointing to the parts of the report that uh, they thought were relevant to to the judiciary, so I'm I'm quite sure that they're they're reviewing that. But to answer your question, no, we don't, and I don't know the na those names. So we think there's going to be an investigation into those six judges. Is that a possibility here? Uh, you know, the Department of Justice sent a letter to uh, the, to the chief judge, you know, expressing you know, concerns and pointing to those parts of the report. So um, it, it's, it's up to the judiciary to react appropriately to that. Uh, do, do officer uh, body- But, but what we can say is we're, just to sort of, I don't mean to interrupt you, but 
the, the warrant process, we have control over putting good warrants in, in front of the judges. Um, and I, I'm confident that going forward, there's gonna be a rotation method where the officers get the judge that they get, who, who's on call at that time. That, that will happen. Uh, and what, what LMPD can do, what the executive branch can do is make sure those warrants have probable cause to support them. That's what we control. And the judiciary is going to have to uh, do whatever it wants to do to react to that correspondence. But what we do know is it will be rotated and we're committed to the warrants being validly issued. Yeah, we definitely need to investigate and really uh, bring these people to uh, some type of accountability, especially judges and the officers involved, as mentioned earlier. Speaking of officers, uh, are body cameras time stamped? Yeah, I think you can tell the date of, of the date and time of the incident. Okay, so if we have um, the body cameras and the and the footage, then we'll have a time stamp and we'll be able to get names that way, right? Well, step one, the DOJ just gave us or gave the county attorney's office a list, like a key, so that corresponding the evidence, certain evidence that they are alerting us to that are in our files, I say our, the LMPD's files, body cam footage, professional standards unit files. Um, we just received that yesterday, or LMPD did, and is starting to review that, just starting to review it. Um, so that correspondence is gonna be put out to the community know under open record so that will be out there everyone will be able to see oh what's what the timeline on that Thursday this Thursday okay but, so but this I, Thursday. I don't want to be, I don't want there to be any mis just mistake there's no names in that that that's just page five of our report has a certain incident here's the body cam footage that would relate to that so you, it makes it easier than just looking for a needle in a haystack now they provided that as, as and the, the LMPD requested that you know, the day after uh, the report was issued. So LMP, so DOJ did, to Councilman Hudson's point, you know, uh, against its normal practice, because in their view, we're cooperative, and this is in the correspondence, you'll see it when it's produced under open records, um, felt that it was appropriate to share that with us. So now that review is possible. Well, yeah, um, you just mentioned uh, finding a needle in a haystack, and that's how I feel about um, the answers I'm getting for the most part. Uh, but I do want to, one more. Uh, are any of these, do we know if any of these uh, infractions done by officers or judges are passed or up to their statute of limitations? You know, I, I can't answer that question. I mean, there, there is plenty of litigation over civil rights violations and personal injury, and I think DOJ noted somewhere that over a six-year period, Louisville spent $40 million on, you know, verdicts and, and, um, and settlements, and that's one of the reasons, not the, not the primary reason, the primary reason is justice, but that's one of the reasons why having constitutional policing is also good for the, for the, for the public um, coffers. Um, but so there, there, there are remedies out there. People pursue them, them all the time. I can't tell you 
with for any particular incident, whether statute of limitations have run. I mean, that's why people, you know, they get they get a lawyer and um, you know they pursue those claims and, and they get advised on on whether they have a valid claim. On uh, number fourteen again, uh, uh, Councilwoman uh, Hawkins alluded to that earlier. Uh, it says specifically support victims, families, and strengthen community engagement. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out what's the you know what's the scope of that you know support victims family we're talking about all the victims who were part of this report victims going back to how far are we going back in supporting family victims are we just talking about current victims uh what's, what's the scope of that language right there is that one of the recommendations yes sir which one is that uh 14, 14. community engagement okay yeah, improve community engagement in violent crime Supporting reduction victim, efforts. Victims, families. Mm -hmm. Right, Louisville Metro and LMPD should implement measures to support victims' families and strengthen community engagement to, to address and, and prevent violent crime. So yeah, I, th I think DOJ um, doesn't believe that you can have a sustainable, effective solution to violent crime if you're detached from the community. If, if policing is not done in, in accordance with community values and community input, I think that's where they're headed um, with that. And I think they wanted to acknowledge that there also are victims um, of crimes. I, I think they're talking about crime victims. Um, that Yeah, are we talking about in the future tense, a past tense, a present? That's that's what I, my question is. I'm talking about who all are we supporting? We, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, I'm feeling like we're, we don't care about the, the, the victims in the past and we just trying to uh, apply this to people in the future but what about the people who've already been affected who lost their jobs who them you know who's basically out of work can't go can't get school money to go to school because they've been affected by these illegal practices what supports can we give them families yeah I, th I think DOJ is ta DOJ is talking about systemic change uh, forward looking future directed um, that that's what they're referring to and just for the record we've been joined a while ago by Councilman McCraney and uh, she's been here for a while and we hadn't recognized her I apologize for that and uh, we've got well we've got three people in the queue now okay folks we're already 25 minutes over we're gonna go about another five or six minutes uh, and then uh, further questions should be emailed to the administration so I see three people in the queue we're gonna acknowledge those three but after that uh, We'll be shutting this meeting down. Uh, I would ask that my colleagues keep their questions to minimum. Next to the queue is Councilman Baker, and you have the floor, sir. All right, thank you. Um, with, uh, I wanted to stay back at uh, question, I mean, uh, number 14. Is there going, and back to my previous question uh, that I posed, uh, my concern and also the question is if we're still in negotiations with um, DOJ, um, why, are, why are we, what amount are we spending ahead of time um, while we're still in negotiation? Um, my fear from a council perspective is when, if we're spending before we have an onset, like a firm negotiation, that we won't have the, the funding needed uh, to make the other investments. So is there a cap? Will there be a limit of what the mayor's office is going to either freeze or suspend as far as the public safety funds uh, to make sure the community is engaged in the process. The community should have a say on where those funds are spent. And if we spend it before the DOJ makes those recommendations, 
I don't, I don't know as a councilman that I can look in that constituent face and say they were a part of where those dollars went in addressing the 36 concerns. Could you, can you speak to that? Yes, yeah, so with respect to, um, you know, there, there are different buckets of ARP funds. You know, one of the American Rescue Plan funds is the 17.5 million that we've been talking about uh, from time to time. So uh, that one, you know, had a time limit initially. The Metro Council said these have to be spent by the end of 2023. And um, we didn't think once, once the mayor came into office, didn't think it was possible to meet that deadline. And, and you know, these are pretty large sums of money that, that take some, some time to, to spend. And uh, so we propose to move that deadline back. Um, and, and now um, we want to make clear, we want to make sure that the Metro Council approves of each specific thing that, that we're recommending. But I think, that, you know, the mayor's philosophy, Councilman, is, you know, let's take action. Let's not wait. Let's, the things that we can do that we know are necessary and will comply with what DOJ wants, let's go ahead and pursue those. Let's get those done. And DOJ has actually complemented things that we had put in place, like this pilot program for deflection, uh, you know, and, and, and other things that, that they said, they, they didn't criticize us for, for going ahead and, and starting. I mean, is that, is that written, written? I mean, I'm just no, kind of going off the record. So I'm looking directly, it says community engagement and reducing violent crime. I'm not seeing the community engagement in some of these these things. Right. Now, if, if if we're presented with, you know, other things based on the record, then I can make those conclusions. Right. But well, if we're spending a pot of money before we're getting the community engaged, I I, I just would like understood your thoughts on that. Well, I, w I would point out that that the Metro Council has appropriated millions of dollars to crime prevention and violence prevention. You know, Ocean has millions of dollars flowing through the Office of Safe and Healthy Neighborhoods, group violence uh, intervention, you know, GVI, uh, well-funded right now. So, so I do think that, that very substantial resources have been invested by the council and, and continue to be used. And we're going to be looking to see, okay, what worked and what needs to be continued to be funded by the council. Uh, ultimately, it's your all's decision what, what to fund. But, uh, but I do think there's quite a bit going on, you know, with, 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 with violence prevention. Um, to, to your question about, um, I, I take it your question to be, if there's limited funds, why, why should we spend on anything until we know where we want to prioritize? And, you know, my response to that is that, that this mayor saw some opportunities right up front when he took office, things that, that, that could be done and could be done well. And ultimately must be done. Um, in the end, the council is going to have to appropriate the funds necessary to accomplish all of this stuff. Some of these things are going to be more expensive than others. Some of these things are, you know, better training, you know, better policies. Right now, Councilman, I can't put a price tag on that. Um, but right now, there, there are funds available. Uh, and, and some of the things that the mayor has recommended, like, for example, the uh, you know, the deflection program, expanding that, that that's something that's going to have to be in the next budget that's proposed to, to the council. Uh, and we think that the, that the funds are there. And with respect to his prior announcement with regard to wanting to invest in officer wellness and wanting to invest in, in, in a new facility to replace the, you know, crumbling police headquarters that's going to be demolished, the, the one on 7th, 7th Street, 7th Avenue, um, you know, the mayor feels strongly about those and feels like, we need to move forward. We need to take action because we know we can accomplish those things, do them well, and they are necessary. 
but all, all the, with respect to the community input on violence front, there is a violence summit, anti-violence summit coming up on the 28th uh, that I'll be at. Uh, th there are ongoing efforts to try to engage the community. It, it's, it's not always easy to do that, but there is quite a bit of outreach going. DOJ is gonna be here the week of the 10th talking to the community. It's setting those up. Uh, there's uh, this anti-violence summit that's happening on the 28th. Um, when the police search is going on, the community will be engaged. There, there's gonna be quite a bit of a community engagement and many opportunities to have conversations and to get, to get your ideas and the ideas of your constituents and make those into, whether it's the budget or legislation, to transform those into something that benefits those neighborhoods. Councilman Syme, you're next in the queue and you have the floor, sir. Thank you, sir. Um, I, I need you to uh, clarify your role in this process and then um, this is a civil matter. If you find any criminal findings, what is, uh, how are you gonna go about referring these cases? So, so my, my role, you know, I'm chief of staff and general counsel, so I, I advise the mayor on, on legal issues. <clears throat> the, the way that I think this will work is you know, the Department of Justice will have its, its team. You know, it has a, uh, an attorney here uh, that, that Mr. Graniger uh, has has been dealing, and I guess I, I, I was remiss not introducing Mr. Graniger. He's uh, really been the main contact person uh, with the Department of Justice for for the past year or more. Um, and uh, so, apologies for not. And I think you retire on the thirty first. So job well done. But so we, we we've had a group since since the mayor took office. A group that. Um, has been trying to lay the groundwork for reacting to the DOJ report, and that will become kind of the, the negotiating team. So I'll be a big part of that because the, the mayor wants his office represented. Uh, so I'll be working with members of the command staff. Uh, so you, you've probably heard of Paul Humphrey. Uh, he's uh, you know an assistant chief who's been in charge of implementing the Hillard Heinz recommendations and, and kind of laying the groundwork for reform. You know he'll definitely be in the room. Uh, so the, the county attorney's office will be represented. So, uh, you know, there will be a strong team that, that's uh, sitting across the table from the DOJ. Um, we're not investigating anything. I mean, the DOJ is the only one that has investigated anything. They did a civil investigation. Um, they've made no mention of any type of criminal investigation being done. Uh, I, I have not heard of that. Uh, what, what, what we have in front of us is just this report, which says that we have a civil case uh, that we could pursue in court. We'd like to settle it. Uh, we'd like to reach an agreement, and, and we accepted that offer to move straight in because we felt it was, or the mayor felt it was the best for the community to just move forward, be successful, build a great police department, and do what the community, uh, build a police department that the community can be proud of. Uh, with Councilman, with respect to, to any type of criminal investigation, I'm entirely unaware of anything like that, but we, we won't be investigating anything. All we will be doing is trying to get a good agreement with the Department of Justice that makes sure that there's never any further pattern or practice of civil rights violations. Well, my question is if you find any criminal, if there are any criminal, if there are any criminal findings, what would, uh, how would you refer the cases? You know, I, during this I, process. You know, I think that's just a hypothetical that I, I'm sorry, I can't answer. Um, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't answer that hypothetical. I'm sorry, Councilman. Thank you. Councilman, I would say this. Uh, you know, when we watch national news, uh, when people's civil rights have been violated in a criminal manner, 
the Department of Justice prosecutes them, sends them to federal prison, uh, I would say this, everything that has been presented to the city, I mean, we've not seen it, but all these examples that, and if they're gonna be giving us more examples, the DOJ has gone through that body camage footage and they've looked at those things. And so at the end of the day, if something did amount to a criminal violation, the federal government would have the ability to, to federally prosecute those people also. And so hopefully that'll be a safety net for something like that you're looking for. Thank you, Chairman. Yeah. The last and final person in the queue, Councilwoman Hawkins, you have the floor. Thank you. Number 14 again, community engagement. Um, you guys never identified also the areas that were targeted. I can only assume the areas. So if you have not um, gave that information out, I'm just curious on where you're going to start at with your, with your community engagement. Um, they need to start in the communities that it happened at, in those communities. Not go way out here, you know, where there's no blacks at, to have a community engagement. We need to have that same community engagement in the areas that it happened. So that needs to definitely happen. Don't go do no community engagement way out here where no blacks live at. Let's, have, let's make sure it happens right where the action happened. So that's a start. That's community engagement. I, I hear you. With that, uh, Eric, David, we want to say thank you all for coming over here today. Thank you for your work. Uh, Eric, your work is coming to conclusion. Thank you for what you've done. Uh, David, we thank you for moving forward. Uh, we thank folks. Uh, 490 Project was represented here today, the ACLU in the audience. Uh, and we've got uh, former Metro Council President David James, now Deputy Mayor, who took some time to come over here today, and we appreciate you being here. With that, uh, nothing else in the queue. Uh, I'm not going to allow anything else in the queue. We're going to be adjourned.